Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to another episode of the Buffalo Happy Hour. Mike, how are you today? Just because you have a gun on you doesn't mean you're armed. Your mind is your safety. What's right. up, dude? Thank you, everybody. That was episode 63 <laughs> of the Buffalo Happy Hour. Um, so I didn't know how much of a risk it was to be a podcast owner. Dude, I am bleeding right now from the top of my finger. And I wish somebody would have written a book about how endangered you are being a podcast owner. It's just not fair. I got blood everywhere. It's like Anyways, a damn crime scene in here. So it's like I should have used my education for real stuff. I know, seriously. Freaking Forensic Files is on site. <laughs> is this 63 or 62? I don't know, dude. 62, I think. It is 62. It is 62. All right. So how are you, everybody? Thank you very much for joining in for our 62nd episode. If you do not know us by now, what are you doing? We are the Buffalo Happy Hour Podcast. Derek Quarantino, is that what we call ourselves? And Mikey Essential? Yeah. And Derek Quarantino? Nailed it. So we are back with you for another episode. The heater finally turned off. It's going to go back down to negative four. And we're here just going to have a good time. We got some awesome bourbon with a crazy story I'm so excited to tell you about. And we're just going to go for it. So, Mike, before we dive in, how was your week? Uh, Yep. Sure. Uh, Totally great. I... What did I do this week? This happens every time. I know. It's like you're not prepared for this question. No, I it don't. literally comes up every single podcast. Because <laughs> there's you're so like, much. You're like, ah, shit. No idea. I don't know you were going to ask me that, Santa. <laughs> I know. Honestly. But no, there's a lot that happened. Uh, we'll start with hunting. Uh, took a doe down. Shot her. Naturally. Could have been a deer doe. Anyways. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Got the meat processed and threw in the freezer and I'm ready for about three more because well, I got tags left. What were you thinking before you pulled that trigger? Shot placement, shot placement, shot placement. That That's all it. you were thinking? Not yep. I'm going to take this deer away from its family? No, I didn't care at all. <laughs> Eliminate the target. Where, uh, where'd you shoot it? Right where I should have. And then the round deflected in the internals. Oh, really? And then exited uh, high, high side, middle of its body, which kind of bothered me because I didn't want to ruin any meat. But I shot it right behind the front shoulder, broadside. I mean, awesome shot. It was about 75, 80 yards uh, right from the stand. She stopped, uh, looked at the ground, nuzzling some leaves out of the way, and then I just blasted her with a 30-30 lever action. It won the West, so it won my dinner. But, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was amazing. It was Honestly, it was a nice shot. Um, I got the, the entrance wound on my phone, so from the inside mm-hmm. after after she was field stripped and hung up and we washed her out cooled down the meat with a hose and then cleaned everything out made sure that it was good to be processed and sent to the butcher do you know how, would you ever learn how to process it yourself or no no yeah yeah absolutely because you can save so much money if you do it yourself yeah how much is it if you bring a dough and does it it, it all depends by poundage? yeah so a lot of it depends on how you want your meat um cut but like a standard cuts about 90 bucks and then all of a sudden done, you're looking at 9,500 bucks. But honestly, how much meat do you have? A lot. Yeah. So the 90 bucks is worth it. Well, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, if you, my belly was just like, I need food now. Um, I don't know if the mics are going to pick that up. The, if you honestly think about it, if you have 30, 30 bucks for tags, you shoot your deer and then you do everything yourself. You essentially just brought in X pounds of meat for 30 bucks. And you can't, I mean, you can't beat that, yeah. you know? So there's probably about 45 pounds of meat out of the one dough. So what so, type of meat do you get from deer? If that makes like, what are you getting deer steaks, like venison steaks? Correct. Yep. So steaks, tenderloins, the back straps are its own thing. Um, and then I got one roast, which is basically just part of the leg. 
uh, and then I'll cut that up and make jerky out of that, and then the rest is ground. And I didn't add anything to the ground. I just got straight ground uh, venison meat because you can add beef or pork to that, but I said no. Keep it as lean as possible. Why would you add beef or pork to it? Some people do just because they think, I, I mean, just it's all what you want. Yeah. So True. you can also do summer sausage, breakfast sausage patties. You can do all sorts of different things. There's, you know, different charges per poundage of how much of it you want. You can also do venison hot dogs, but you'll get those later in the season just because they get all the deer in and then they make venison hot dogs in, in bulk. So you'll get that months down the road. Sure. I didn't want to wait. I wanted to fill the freezer. So I just said, give me all ground and we'll go from there. So, so you just got all ground? Outside of the steaks gotcha. and the roast, yeah, and, yeah. yeah, the the back straps and the tenderloins. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen the pictures online of like di- not dissecting a cow, but like what parts of the cow are for which type of meat that you're eating. Yeah, it's crazy how much like what comes from where. Like you can't take a steak out of the belly or whatever. Correct. I don't even know if that's accurate because I am not a hunter. But but no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. What is steak is back? You can. I mean. You can essentially just take roasts and then cut the roast into steaks. Mm, so okay. it just it's all it's all the things. But okay. yeah, so shot her. She went down, um, and then I basically waited to see if a, a buck was going to come and and follow the doe, and didn't happen. So I, I crawled out of the stand um, and then went down, cleared through because I didn't want her to jump up and then run away and I didn't want to track just because there was no snow on the ground and it would have been extremely difficult to track the blood trail where it's all in the leaves. It just would have been impossible to follow. So uh, pulled out my sidearm, cleared through the whole thing, made sure that she was actually deceased and she was. She she died extremely quickly and then I jumped back in the stand, waited a couple minutes, got rid of the shakes and then uh, field strip from there. So yeah, it was good. Did you feel bad shooting it after to make sure it was dead? I do. I have such a heart from for that. I don't know if I could ever I didn't, do that. It was already dead, so I didn't shoot. Oh, again. okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Once I, I, I basically just went up with my sidearm out to, to confirm sure, that yeah. it was dead, just because I didn't want any suffering at all, uh, and that's why I was thinking shot placement initially because mm-hmm. I didn't want the animal to suffer literally at all. So I knew where to shoot. I knew. You know, when was a good time to shoot? Make sure it wasn't moving. What's my backdrop? What's behind the deer? So I understand all the things around because when you're dialing in on the scope and you're you're gaining your sight picture, it's very, very easy to get tunnel vision. So, you know, it's a lot of people just think close one eye and just slow the, you know, your trigger squeeze and things like that. But I was, I was both eyes open and are you supposed to close one eye when you shoot? A lot of it is gaining your sight picture. So it depends on who you talk to, but most people will say keep both eyes open when you shoot just because you're going to have a better aware, like situational awareness of what's going on around you. But it's all, it's all in training. But when you first start shooting, it's almost impossible to gain your sight picture and then understand what you're looking at without closing one eye. Mm-hmm. So initially, Because you have to find your loophole too, right? So there's trees in the way, you're in the woods, there's a lot of other things that you have to think about, like what could my bullet hit other than a deer? Because you don't want that either. You don't right. want your round to get deflected and then hit a leg and then all of a sudden it's all over the place. Or if if you're being super ridiculous or cocky or, you know, a far shot like 80 yards, you're not trying to hit just the head. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So the the things you're thinking about when you're gaining your sight picture are all those aspects. So you want to make sure your sight picture is perfect and your eye relief for the scope is accurate and correct okay so i did one eye closed so my right eye is dominant so i closed my left eye um shoot right right armed and then once i had my side picture i opened up my other eye because then i knew like all right i'm good i'm all set mm-hmm. um and then i was able to understand after the shot did the deer go anywhere did it run away like obviously it does just because there's so much adrenaline pumping through the deer that right. it doesn't know what happened doesn't know where it came from doesn't really know anything so that was the biggest thing too just because the way the properties I was on private property but the the property itself is skinny and I didn't want to track into somebody else's property mm-hmm. on opening day for rifle season rifle and shotgun and it was 2 hours into opening day so it was anything could have happened so for my safety too I had to make sure I down the deer right right so um she walked right in you know my 12 o'clock from the stand I followed her she was in a group of four. I chose her. She was the biggest, and I chose her just because I, I think we were taking her to the dance or something. Well, 
uh, yeah, basically, you know, but you want to make sure that you're not killing something extremely young. You're not killing something, you know, so you're all looking, you're looking at the nose, the head shape. Is mm-hmm. it really skinny and drawn out? Like you're looking at all those different things. So she was the biggest one in the pack. So I knew she still had, you know, she was, a, she lived a good life. Um, she came right in. But then the other aspect too is the best meat's like two to three year, two to three year old dough. So you're kind of gauging. But it's all, all this is split second, sure. right? Yeah. So then your heart starts pumping because you're like, oh, my God, I can do this. Like, this is it. You know, it's, it's going to be a deer. And then you gain your sight picture. You're all set. And then you zone in on shot placement, shot placement, shot placement. Mm-hmm. Got the shot placement. Pull the trigger. Aim small, miss small, baby. Exactly. So um, nice trigger squeeze. Didn't jerk her. Nothing crazy. Shot went through. Watched the round impact. And then I basically pulled out for a second and then chambered another round. And then if need be, because most people forget to do that and then they're screwed. So chambered another round and then caught back up with her because she ran about 50, 50 meters. Um, and then she stopped again and it was because she couldn't breathe. I got her right in the lung. Mm. Couldn't breathe at all. And then I watched her fall over. Peter's going to shut us down. We're done. That's yeah, fine. Um, <laughs> once, once she actually like she, once she collapsed, then I put the rifle down, um, put it on safe, obviously put the, the rifle down. And then I was shaking like a leaf, which is good. That's what you want. Right. Because then, you know, it's it's buck fever, essentially. And, you mm-hmm. know, like I just did it like, I'm, wow. Was this your one of your yeah. first or your yeah, first? Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I basically was shaken and then calm myself down, breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, dude, relax. Like it's it's not, you know, it's a big deal, but it's not a massive deal. Like right. there's there's more to life. So calm myself down, brought myself back and then uh, sat there for a minute, waited for the buck. If, if the buck was going to come, because it's still late in the first rut. So, you know, they're all juiced up, ready to go, just like how I am every day. And then uh, nothing happened, went down, cleared through, made sure she was actually deceased. She was, went back, my buddy came, and then uh, we field dressed her and brought her down. And, and basically by noon, she was, or one o'clock, she was already at the at the butcher. Did your buddy get one too, or no? Not yet. No. Uh, he got one deer in bow season, but he didn't get one opening weekend. He's being extremely selective, which is good. Again, yeah. management of the land, making mm-hmm. sure you're not just, you know, if it's brown, it's down. Right. You're, you're taking your shots. So it's nice. I mean, it was an awesome experience. Got a lot of meat. And then I'm going out Thanksgiving morning uh, with my brother at a different place, different stand all together. So I'm excited for that. Do you have it? You were talking about just manage like field management. Do you have something that you're trying to go for this time or just another big doe? Well, I have tags for both, so okay. I still haven't shot a buck. I still got my buck tag, and then I got two doe tags. Oh, there's two different ones? I don't know that. Yeah. So you can only um, – it's basically just – it's gender-specific, right? So, yeah, I still got two doe tags, and then I got a buck tag. So gotcha. And the buck, I can get anywhere. It doesn't have to be specific to a certain zone where oh, okay. your doe tag is specific to a certain zone. So the state's broken up into different zones, like 9F, 9H, 9T. Because of, like, the reproduction prop? Yeah, DEC probably. basically yeah. manages everything. So. Makes how it's sense. supposed to go, not everybody does it, but how it's supposed to go is, which, shame on them, um, you kill it, you tag it, you report it. So once you get your deer, you tag your deer with your little yellow tag, you basically stab the ear, and then take a zip tie, punch a hole through your tag, and then zip tie it to the ear. Um, and then you call DEC within seven days and report your harvest. Gotcha. So, hey, I got a, you know, I got a doe this day, this zone, and they're like, oh, no problem. And they just track it, and then they can manage the population that way. Yeah. Um, most, pe- most people do. There's some people that don't. There's like, I don't want New York State to know anything. Um, or they You're only hunting. report or they only report bucks just right. because there's so many doe that it's like, I'm not going to report a doe that's you know two, three years old. I'll just report my eight or ten point buck. Um, there's, there's multiple trains of thoughts, but, but essentially the right thing to do is always report what you shoot. That's interesting, though, that they don't really manage zones for bucks because I feel like that's the more prevalent one that they would want to be like, okay, they only do. one buck here. Yeah, no, they do. Um, oh, okay. But for but bucks don't reproduce. Right. Or, I mean, with birth. You can get you know? a stud fee. Yeah. Go find a buck in Chuktawaga. Right. They have all the baby producing possibilities. So, so yeah. So, it's, you know, they they manage both. But either way, you just report everything and keep it all square. Interesting. And you're trying to be ethical. You're not trying to shoot a fawn or, you know, like, legit Bambi, yeah. you know. But. Well, that's cool. Well, congratulations on getting your first one. That's exciting. Thanks, man. And then. Uh, I'm proud of you. And I can't wait for some venison jerky. It's going to happen. And then the the basement made progress. The projector's in, uh, so that's huge. And going from there. Hell so yeah. what's up with you, dude? Don't want to talk about it. We're good. I just have to get another furnace. I feel like I'm just 
dishing out money for furnaces. Just like well, uh, DJ Khaled's like, another one. And I'm like, God damn it. I don't want another one, man. I know. So i got to spit out some more money for furnace. But it's good because as we were talking about my health issues that I probably had, I diagnosed myself with carbon monoxide also poisoning, which is very exciting. But that is a real possibility because the, the my friend came over to do the furnace and he poked a hole in the pipe for to see if there was carbon monoxide leaking in my basement just filled with this sweet carbon monoxide and it was it was bad he's like dude you got to get this done like now because it should not be doing this basically the secondary heat exchanger was fried and he tried to explain it to me and i'm like dude listen i'm good at excel nothing else like you can tell me all this stuff but it's gonna go right over my head all i know is that as it heats up that secondary heat exchanger splits apart a little bit and then carbon monoxide was passing through that don't know how don't know why but all i know is that it was like a 3500 fix so it's fun but the guy who owned the house before me was not a very good person. He tried to he tried to be a good person. He was like me without like the internet smarts, if you know what I'm saying. Like he's the type of person that'll say, I need to replace the furnace, but I'm not gonna look to see how to do it. I'm just gonna do it. Whereas I would be watching 14 hours of YouTube videos figuring out how to do it properly. Or, he just put or it in. paying someone. Yeah. So with heating, you're supposed to have like an, an outlet for the heat to come up or the air conditioning to come up, but you also need to have a spot for the air to go back in into the furnace. So the dude put one in the living room and nowhere else in the house. So I don't have these registers that bring the cold air back in. So basically what my room is doing is sp- specifically my bedroom because my bedroom is freezing in the wintertime and extremely hot during the summertime because air doesn't circulate. So the air that I want comes into the room, combines with the other air, and then it has nowhere else to go. So it just goes to a different room. Whereas if it's heat, it should be pulling the cold air back down into the furnace for it to recycle. So it's a constant loop. Mine doesn't have that. So Mark comes over and he's like, dude, I don't, I don't like everything's wrong. I'm like that's exactly what I want to hear. Every time I see Mark, I say only good news today. And it's never been good news. It's always been, you know what, man? Sorry. God damn it. <laughs> so is he going to run docked? Yeah. So he's going to redo all the duct work. The, again, the guy had like eight inch pipes, like duct work in the basement. So I would hit my head on it every time I try to do the wash. So he's going to redo all that. And I mean, Mark's a great guy. He's helped me with all, all this stuff. So uh, he's going to redo all that and just make it flush with the ceiling. So I have more room down there. It's crazy, man. Crazy times. But yeah, so that was my week. So now I'm going to get destroyed off of bourbon this week because I want to forget all of my problems. And that's where we're at. Sick. Yeah. Very sick. Yeah. So let's get into the whiskey section. So today, I have a very special whiskey, and I don't know why it's so special, basically based off of the story that I got from it. So a little backstory, a guy that I used to work with, he texted me because obviously, like you probably are, in our friend circles, we're known as the whiskey guys now. That's just how it works. So the guy sent me a picture of this specific bourbon, it's Jefferson's bourbon, and he said the best whiskey he's ever had hands down. So I got super into it. You okay? Yeah. Okay. I got super into it. Um, I was like, okay, well, what does this mean? I saw it has this thing that says Jefferson's Ocean Aged at Sea. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means. So I wanted to do a little more research and figure out what this whiskey is and what made it so good. Where is it from? It's, It's a Kentucky bourbon. So, and the distillery is Jefferson. Jefferson itself does not produce whiskey. They source it and then mix it. And their their specialty is the aging process. So they will put it in barrels and age it, let it maturate in whatever situation possible, which makes this very specific, which we'll get into. So first of all, it's Jefferson. It's called Ocean Aged at Sea. It's 90 proof, 45% ABV. The awards that this has won, specifically this one, I didn't find any awards on because probably it changes every year, which we'll talk about. But Jefferson Small Batch Bourbon and Jefferson Reserved received a 92 and a 94, respectively, from the Beverage Tasting Institute in 2012. Jefferson's Rye received a 92 from the Wine Enthusiast in 2012 as well. So a little company background on this, and this is where it gets really interesting. So founded in 1997, Jefferson is the brainchild of Troy Zoller, who is the CEO and master blender, and his father, Chet, a famed bourbon historian. 
They were continuing a family tradition that goes back to Trey's eighth-generation grandmother, who was arrested in 1799 for the production and sale of spirituous liquors. She is basically like known as the first woman in the uh, bourbon industry, which is super sick. Um, so his curious and experimental mindset has allowed him to push the boundaries of the definition of bourbon, uploading or upholding tradition, yet always discovering new possibilities. So that's the Jefferson distillery in general. They source it. They really focus on blending and the aging process, which is what sparked this. So this specific whiskey in 2012, Trey's friend, Chris Fisher on his 40th birthday, he brought all of his friends out on the boat that Chris used for research. So Chris is the founder of this nonprofit organization called, um, ocean, uh, Oh, church. I'm sorry. So it is a nonprofit organization that goes around and tags and catches sharks for them to then track using GPS where they are mating, where they are giving birth so they can control the environment because currently the world loses about a quarter of a million sharks every day and about a hundred million sharks a year, primarily because of the shark fin soup in China. So sharks are just going extinct basically. So this organization, this nonprofit organization goes out on boats, catches sharks tags them so then they can monitor where they're mating and where they're giving birth to be able to control that environment to help the sharks reproduce. The uh, Chris Fisher, who is again the owner uh, or the founder of this nonprofit, he has an interesting quote that says, if you can pull off making business, having fun and doing what's good, what a ride. That's way better than making money. So that's the whole process of bringing this on board the ship, which I'm going to get to right now. So as they were drinking bourbon on this little expedition that they have during that 40th birthday, Trey and uh, Chris were looking at the bourbon um, bottle. And as they were going over waves, they were watching it like splash back and forth in their bottle. And they said, you know, it would be sweet if we brought barrels onto the boat with us during our expeditions. So that's where that thought process formed from. Dude, it's so interesting. So what they do is they take at first, they only took, I think two or three barrels on this ship that Chris used to go around the world and they put barrels on it. And the aging process itself was that whole journey of them taking this barrel through all these different climates, all these different waves. I, I think, hold on, let me, let me find the actual quote here, but it was, uh, I think that they went to 30 different ports in five continents and they crossed the equator four times each barrel. So it's now, a super quick trip. Dude. Yeah. Oh, like, easy. Come on. So, <laughs> the exciting part about this is just because it is not your typical aging process and having it out in the open on a ship with waves crashing in specifically salt water because it's on the ocean you're having salt water crashing into it just dousing this barrel you're having the heat from crossing the equator the cold from going in up north and, and whatever away from the equator and you're going to all these different climates and seeing what that does to the bourbon in the barrel they said increases the maturation process. So like an eight-year-old whiskey in this barrel, like if you're aging it for eight years, it's actually like aging it for 12 years or whatever because of that process of expanding, extracting all the wood or all the flavors within the wood. And then also when it's moving, it's obviously hitting all of the sides of the barrel too. It's not just sitting stagnant in the barrel. So that's what's exciting about this. The result was a thick, dark bourbon that showcases complex flavors reminiscent of other spirits. The almost black color and caramel flavor resembles of dark rum as the sugars within the barrel caramelized. The briny, savory taste from the barrels breathing the sea air is reminiscent of Isla Scotch, and to its core, it's a true bourbon. Due to the massive demand from consumers, Trey has now commercialized this, this experiment and sends hundreds of barrels around the world. Each voyage of Jefferson's Ocean typically crosses the equator four times, visits five continents, and over 30 ports of uh, on an average sail. It's wild, dude. So that's kind of what I was getting at by this is going to be very, very different from what you've ever had from a tasting note, smelling standpoint than what you would expect from a traditional Kentucky bourbon. Well... The first beep occurred. Cheers, ma'am. Cheers. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. That's what I'm saying. Have you had this before? 
No. I'm very shocked. You can taste the salt water. And just the general saltiness. Salt is up front. Mm -hmm. This is so interesting. So they do. What's cool about this? Like I said, they're on voyages. What's the proof? 90. Very smooth for 90. So they do voyages, which is obviously their their whole trip, going to these different ports, these different countries. And what they include on here are your voyage ship log of each bourbon that you're getting. Like right now, this is Voyage 20. When I went to our friend over at Eddie's Liquor, where I bought this from, Eddie's, thank you so much for, again, helping us out, not only finding this, because I don't know how readily available this was, but also teaching me a little bit more on the uh, previous voyages that I didn't have time to read, because there's 20 of them. I think there's 22 now. I'm pretty sure that Voyage 17 had like a hurricane or something happen to the boat where they lost a ton of product and all this other like various things that they were shipping and but they were able to save some bourbon which that went through a freaking hurricane it's crazy did they change the price on that batch i'm not sure i don't know that's why an interesting question i would love to go and interview this dude and just understand like why mm-hmm. like this is very different so going back to the history again a little bit back in the early days of kentucky bourbon how they would ship this or how they would get their product out to different countries is not by like plane or anything because they didn't exist back then. So it was through boats. So that's what Trey's dad being a bourbon historian was kind of bringing to light as he said, like, this is what we used to do back in the day. So Trey was like, well, why don't we bring that back and put bourbon back on boats to get that authentic maturation process flavor. So sweet. So this is, uh, again, Ocean aged at sea. This is Voyage 20, and this is the ship log. So left under, uh, left port under clear skies and slight seas. There was a chill in the air about 45 degrees, which warmed as the sun rose above the fog bank, being held offshore by an offshore breeze. As the wind increased and the seas became moderate, the bright sun over the ocean gave it a golden glow that shimmered across the tops of the four-foot waves and remained such all the way to the north entrance of the Panama Canal. Traffic was light in the canal, and while the humidity was up, the temperature held to the mid-80s. Pulling away from the locks of Balboa and entering the Pacific Ocean, the typhoon season was already three months underway, a season unlike the Atlantic hurricane season that extended over six to seven month period. Typhoons in the Pacific can occur at any time throughout the year. Uh, Ocean Voyage 20 was headed south towards the equator as the storm activity was well to the north. Crossing the equator, the season switched from spring to autumn. Seas were slight, skies were clear, and the temperature remained a balmy 85 degrees, and the ocean continued to sparkle like liquid gold. With the exception of the rough uh, rough spot during our run between Melbourne and Fremantle, Voyage 20 had a smooth sailing up around the Pacific Rim, back through the Caribbean, up to the east coast of the United States, and in and out of the North Atlantic. As we docked at 7.40 a.m. in Savannah, the sun had risen over the gold, still and golden sea, just as it uh, had upon departure. Steady temperatures in golden seas, or in gentle seas, had a mellowing effect on the crew and the bourbon of Ocean Voyage 20, and you can experience its golden glow neat or shimmering over an ice cube or two. Please sip responsibly. It's so cool at the outline the travel. That's fascinating. Right? That's a really cool product and a really good idea. Yeah, because it obviously changes the dynamic of the like everything, the tasting profile, and they've done this in Greece with wine. Oh, really? Yeah, they they take crates of wine and sink it in the Aegean Sea. Some people say Aegean, the and and in the Mediterranean in general, and then it changes the entire um, tasting profile of the wine. So I'm super excited and glad that they're doing this with bourbon, just because it it makes it that much better and more unique. And all the fine details that they do for this as well, like the voyage mm-hmm. notes that, I mean, that's a one. I mean, there's no one else doing that. Right. Well, this is good. Yeah. Very good. All right, man. Let's get to the cocktail section. Drop the beef for the cocktail section. Cocktails. Well, well then. That, that was a little anger in me because of what we just went through. All right. Uh, Michael, what's your cocktail, my friend? Mine is a John Collins. Ooh, love him. We go way back. <laughs> so it's one and a half ounces of this whiskey, 
one ounce lemon juice, one ounce, or I'm sorry, half ounce simple syrup, uh, two ounces of club soda, and then you garnish with a maraschino cherry and an orange slice. You pour the bourbon, lemon juice, and syrup into a Collins glass full of ice. You stir it thoroughly, and then you top it with club soda, and you garnish with a cherry and an orange slice. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. What do you got? So I kind of copped out a little bit. I went neat. Just because this is a bourbon that is so unlike any other bourbon, oh, brother. you need to try it first before you have it with a cocktail. Even if it's just a simple shot, you need to taste the intricacies within this bourbon before you start diluting it. This is a one-of-a-kind thing. You're not going to find, and I ask, and I did research, you're not going to find another bourbon that is like aging and like getting older at sea. It's not going to happen. Right, I agree. So I, agree, I, I, agree. I think that you need... I agree, I agree, I agree. You need to have this neat first. I like that. You want to kill that? Yeah, I, I got it on the phone, bro. <laughs> Everything's Wi-Fi in this house. You know what I'm saying? Perfect. <laughs> so you have a massive electronic footprint. So when an EMP bomb hits, your house is just going to basically shut down because it can't function? Okay, if we have an EMP thing that goes off near me, I'm not worried about my garage heater i'm worried about the rest of my life because i would not be able to survive <laughs> all right so while this blows out ice cold air uh let's get into the whiskey rating the wednesday whiskey review friend all right man let's do it label branding so right off the bat <clears throat> jefferson's i've never had any of their other products so i would be interested to see how their other products relate to this what are they so their other products are they have a very small batch a reserve ocean which is this Ocean Cask Strength, Chef Collaboration, Pritchard Hill Finish, Old Rum Cask Finish, and Twin Oak. It's a ton of products. But I've never had any of their other stuff. I'm pretty sure that the mash bill for this, from what I've read, is similar to the mash bill of their reserve, but they did not give out specifics of their mash bill. So, that being said, we know it's bourbon, which means it's at least 51% corn. With the flavor profiles that we're getting, it's probably not a very high rye, I would say. It's probably maybe like 15% rye, and the rest I'm going to assume is malted barley. But with this, from a label branding standpoint, it is in, like, have you ever seen those bottles where people build ships in? You know what I'm saying? Like that weird hobby that people do where they build yes. ships. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like when I saw this, I pictured that. Maybe it's because of the ship on the label, but that's exactly what I thought of. Who would have thought? Yeah, really. But doesn't this look like a bottle they would build a ship in? I feel like it would. I feel like I've seen this bottle before with a ship in it. Yeah, I also like how they have the globe in the back of the bottle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sweet. They have ocean aged at sea, which immediately drew my attention to it. The whole aged at sea portion. So that's a sweet marketing standpoint. The um, the globe in the background, which is pretty cool. Um, and then I also like that they included the uh, little pamphlet thing up here that tells you about the voyage that this went through. Again, this is specific to the ocean, obviously, because this is the only bourbon that went on that trip. But I think that's a pretty sweet tactic. Comes with a cork, comes with wood on the cork, and also the Jefferson label up top. So I'm going to give this an A++++. I agree, I agree, I agree. I agree, I agree, I agree. All right, nose. What are you getting for the nose? It's interesting because the nose is very similar to a, like a Woodford bourbon. Um, and then when you taste it, then you just get punched in the mouth with all different types of things and all the things. And then it that's when you fully understand what Jefferson's is. Mm -hmm. So on the nose, I'm getting... Oak, wood sugars, um, and then a little bit of salt. You can a you can bit. smell the salt. Not, yeah, but it's not. It's very light. Yes, and we said this yes. last week with McAllen. It's very inviting too. It's a sweet, salty nose to it, which makes you want to try it. It's a soft nose, mm -hmm. and you're, for a ninety proof, you would expect and or anticipate more ethanol, but you're not getting it. Yeah, I agree. 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 A plus plus. A plus plus. All right, initial taste. Salt. Mm -hmm. Nailed it. This is oily, too. So you are picking up, I mean, the oil coats your mouth, which is nice. You're getting salt, honey, vanilla, um, standard characteristics of bourbon. 
but the salt is what really changes it. And then you're getting a little bit of a baking spice on the on the ending note, which we'll get to, but it's there's like no fruit. Yeah. And there's a very very light lingering burn. Nothing crazy. What do you think of <clears throat> Hold on. Like a salted nut on the initial taste. Yeah. I can like I don't know if it's a almond or an, or a almond. Jesus, what is that nut? I don't an know. almond or a walnut? You sound like me though. But I feel like I can taste some sort of nut on this. That's what she said. Yeah, kind of like a planner's feel, but not that. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I agree, I agree, I agree. Are you getting any, like, apple? No, I'm not getting any fruit, which I'm surprised about, but I'm not. The initial taste on this says chocolate salted caramel milk chocolate. Not getting chocolate at all. And then tropical fruits like pineapple and guava. Well, I've never had guava, so. But I also don't sail around the world. It's true. So, there's that. I would still rate this an A++ on the initial taste, though. Are you getting any type of pineapple? No, I'm getting no fruit at all. I'm not getting any veggies either, if you're going to ask that. <laughs> How many servings of each are you getting? <laughs> the I'm not receiving my RVAs. Okay, so <laughs> think of pineapple right now. Because now that I think of it, I can taste it, but to me it's more of an end. Not getting it. I can see where they're coming from because that's kind of like what would keep it quote-unquote light. But I'm not, I'm not like, wow, <laughs> I taste that pineapple. Like, it's not there. Like, I'm getting salt, and I'm getting the, the wood sugars, the baking spice, the... You, you know, know what? I'm tasting a little cinnamon, too. I'm also not. Nailed it. We're really good at this game. Um, so, <laughs> initial taste, what are you saying? A++? Yeah. But we have different palettes, so that's what happens. That's true. But yeah, I'm getting so a little bit of a cinnamon. Yeah, well, and that's not on here, though. No, so. I'm just going to call you a liar and move so on. So nobody believes me, but it's fine. So ending note. What are you getting for ending note? Uh, a minor. So the... <laughs> that's a felony, Mike. What are you getting for... <laughs> just getting the um, little bit of the burn and the baking spice and then the oil. That's pretty much about it. What about... You're like, nope. I'm not. Nothing at all. Like a cream? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, This says delicate and warm with a return of vanilla cream and toast. Instead of chugging this, I'm just going to let this sit in my word hole and see what comes out. Because I, I'm going to wait and see the, you know, the back end of the ending note. That makes sense. Dash of water. Bam. See what happens. See if this opens it up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Open up the pit. Circle pit for this song. <sighs> Goodness. You're on a whole nother level. I'm going to be paying $3,000. So I'm, like, <laughs> I'm okay to be on another level. <laughs> If you did not hear yet, uh, Derek is buying a new furnace. So stay warm, Buffalo. Stay warm. Also, save your pennies because it ain't cheap. So adulting sucks. Okay, but that's a bourbon. That opened it up a little bit. I'm I'm honestly try not it. getting try try right. a dash hoss. of water. Chill out, hoss. Who's hoss? You are nailed it. Jesus, what do you want? <laughs> I don't have a drop of do. <laughs> Trying to be an athlete over here. That opened it up a lot. Still not getting any rye, so I'm going to stick with my 10 to 15% rye. But now you can get some of that cream and vanilla at the end. I'm still not picking up Vag- guava in the front. Correct. But. Yeah, I'm not either. But yes, I, I, agree, yeah, I, agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. A plus plus. Any note. You agree with that? I agree. I agree. <laughs> final rating. All right. For the final rating, 
what we're going to do is I'm going to say number, you're going to say number at the same time so we don't know what each other's numbers are. I'm going to try to do math. It's never going to work out, and we're going to go on from there. Are you recapping what we do every episode? Yeah. Perfect. Give me the countdown for the final rating. Ten. (laughs) (laughs) You should have went higher. I would have peed. I literally would have lost my marbles. If you're like, okay, 69, 68, like a random, not even 100, just a random number. I would have literally oh went inside to warm up and then came back out. <laughs> All right. Three, two, one. 94. 95. I like it. Math. That is very good. And I feel like it is the more you drink it, which I'll tell you tonight because this bottle is going to be gone tonight because I spent so much money for So I feel like the more you drink it, the more flavors you'll uncover. This seems very, very intricate. And the tasting notes that we pointed out are similar to a high, ex- like a very expensive bourbon. Oh, but, no doubt. And I mean, this is not thirty dollars bourbon. Correct. Yeah. For those that are curious, it's yeah. not you know, it's not thirty bucks. Yeah, it's a it's a ninety dollars bourbon that I found at Addie's Wine and Liquor. Again, go check them out. They have all the best prices, and it's where you need to go for all of your all, all of your wine needs. You need to go out there very quickly. They have a wall in the back, um, <laughs> so you need. To- <laughs> They have a fence in there. If you didn't listen to the interview, go listen to it because they had to put it up because of square footage requirements. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> so definitely go try try this if you have the funds for it. It is a very intricate bourbon that you're not going to find the same process in many bourbons that you try ever. So this is this should be on your bucket list just to experience it. You can taste that sea salt. You can taste that fresh air, and it's very very light and does not go down like a ninety proof. Yes, I'm with you. So <laughs> let's get into the segment of the episode where we talk about the history of Buffalo. Yep, I literally can't stop thinking about how Addie's does, in fact, have a wall in the back. Yeah, big wall. That's why I love going there. They have the greatest wall. <laughs> and they made Wegmans pay for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. So we won't ever be going back there. But anyway, so <laughs> now let's jump into the history of Buffalo segment. So everybody that has been following us for a long time, we do this segment in our show called The History of Buffalo. We break down different parts of the history of Buffalo, starting with the pre-colonization of the area, which went back to the native tribes that occupied the land. And now for episode six of this segment miniseries, we are going to be discussing the City of Light and how we became to be known as the City of Light and kind of the events that happened within the years of 1900 and 1957. So I'll start it with hydroelectricity, and then I will pass the ball, as us corporate people say, because WebEx is the only thing we can use, Corona. Um, I will pass the ball to Michael to continue the discussion. So as everybody may know, Buffalo is the place for Niagara Falls. So Michael, Niagara Falls is considered one of the seven wonders of the world. How many times do you go and experience Niagara Falls? Once every 25 years. Really? You've only gone like twice? <laughs> or only once so far? <laughs> Math. Yeah, I I don't go there. Um, I frequent Niagara Falls only because of work, but otherwise it's a massive drug port, and it's pretty <laughs> demoralizing at what they did to it. Yeah. So it could be much better, and it's not. Uh, for those listening, please go to Niagara Falls and enjoy it. If I had to give you a pro tip... From the inside as a local, visit the Canadian side. Yes. Uh, it's just better. So yeah, we it, have a lot of issues with Native Americans and drugs and problems and no funding. Yeah. So if you want to hear about those problems, look at the first five episodes of the segment miniseries. So I 100% agree with you. The only thing that I would say are the views of the falls itself are nicer from the American side from my perspective. But the experience itself is better from the Canadian side because they take care of it better. Correct. So, they don't have politics involved. They understand that it's the seventh wonder of, of the world, yeah. and they can generate a ton of revenue in that area. Have you ever gone when it was frozen over? Yeah, it's sick. It is very, very cool. Yeah. It, I highly recommend that. That's almost cooler than the regular falls when it's is, not frozen Is it over. because it's frozen? Is that why it's cooler? It is. it's frozen? Aha. Boom. <laughs> it's very cooler. All right. So <laughs> Niagara Falls, if you don't know, 
why it's significant is because the water falling from the falls generates power through the like the power that it the amount of water that falls down from the falls and the impact generates power and that's how initially we got electricity so that is called hydroelectricity which is hydroelectric electric power harnessed from nearby niagara falls made buffalo the first american city to have widespread electric lighting yielding it to the nickname the city of light electricity was used to dramatic effect at the pan-american exposition in 1901 which is very important when we come to the later segment around one of the presidents that was assassinated here so how does how does hydroelectricity work so power is created by taking the energy of falling water to generate electricity parts include for this equation your dam which the dam will obviously regulate the amount of water coming through turbine generator and the transmission lines so for this equation, we're not going to do math here because that's just going to be a whole nother topic that neither of us are well suited for, to be honest. So power equals the height of dam, so the how tall the water is falling down, the river flow, which is going to be the velocity of water going through, times the efficiency, and then you're dividing that by 11.8, which is the uh, constant number that is used to convert feet and seconds into kilowatts. So just to give you a number about Niagara Falls itself, Currently, Niagara Falls generates about 2.7 million kilowatts for the United States and 2.338 million kilowatts for Canada for a total of a little bit over 6 million kilowatts total. That's a ton of energy. Yeah, it is. And you talk about like how to clean the like not use and rely so much on natural gas and try to use the environment that we're in to power some stuff. I mean, this is huge. Why doesn't all of Buffalo, like, not use any natural gas? We're right next to Niagara Falls. Right. So to put this in perspective, if someone owns a Tesla, you're charging your car at a charger station at about 144 kilowatts an hour at the charging station. And Niagara Falls is producing 6 million kilowatts an hour. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Crazy. So funny that you brought up tesla so nikola tesla and george westinghouse built the first hydroelectric power plant in 1895 in niagara falls and started the electrification jesus that's sounded like bush there electrification of the world uh yep of the world so there's three power plants that we need to talk about the first one is the adam beck power plant which there's an image right here the adam beck generating station number one was built in 1917 it started producing power in 1922 and contains a total of 10 generators the station was originally known as the queenston chippewa hydroelectric development in 1990 the adam beck power plant station one was designated as a historic site of canada so obviously this is on the uh, canada side the Adam Beck Power Station Number Two, which is a very clever name, if I do say so myself, Sir Adam Beck Generating Station Number Two was built in 1950, and it is the largest hydroelectric power station on the Niagara River and in the Niagara region. The Adam Beck Two started producing power in 1954 and contains a total of 16 generators. And then finally, the Robert Moses Hydroelectric Station. So this is the third one. Robert Moses Niagara Power Plant and the Lewiston Pump Generating Plant with a combined of 25 turbines generating up to 2.6 million kilowatts of energy. Do you know where all that goes? Where? New York City. Nailed it. Selfish pricks. When are we going to have a governor that cares about us? One of these days. Yeah, one of these days. All right, Mike. Uh, so that is the reason why we're called the city of light basically in a nutshell is because we are very close to niagara falls which generated the first power the in the closest. area the best power in the area i can guarantee it i have a lot of friends that can tell you that the best power um michael do you want to dive into the the pan-american exposition and the atrocities that happened there what if i said no what do i then say? i guess i would do it <laughs> so, i don't really have a choice so the pan the pan-american exposition the best was, american the World's Fair. Not called the Pan-China Exposition. <laughs> Sorry. It was held in Buffalo, New York <laughs> from May 1st through November 2nd. Jesus, that's a long time. <laughs> I forgot those dates. Is it really? So May 1st. That's the Erie County Fair, but just still going on. <laughs> <laughs> ah, just keep it going. More mayonnaise balls around. Let's go. I know. They're not fat enough yet. Just keep making the fried dough. 
<laughs> so May 1st through November 2nd, 1901. Good Lord. The fair occupied 350 acres of land on the western edge. Dude, that's six whole months. <laughs> I know. Dude, six months occupying 350 acres on the west edge of what is now Delaware Park, extending from Delaware Ave to Elmwood Ave and Northwood to Great Arrow Ave. Goodness. The event was organized by the Pan American Exposition Company, formed in 1897. Cayuga Island was initially chosen as a place to hold the exposition because of the island's proximity to Niagara Falls, which was a massive tourist attraction. Huge tourist attraction. (laughs) When the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898, the plans were put on hold. But after the war, there was a heated competition between Buffalo and the Niagara Falls over location. Buffalo won for two main reasons. First, Buffalo had a bigger population. With roughly 350,000 people, it was the eighth largest city in the U.S., which is interesting because now it's about 260,000. I was just going to say the same thing. So we lost like 100,000 people from 1901. Blame the Democrats. No, (laughs) I I mean, I I don't know. Like, yeah, apparently. So second, Buffalo had, it's honestly, we probably lost 90,000 people due to weather. But the True. second Buffalo had better railroad connections. The city was within a day's journey by rail for over 40 million people. In July 1898, sorry, 1898, Congress pledged $500,000 for the exposition to be held at Buffalo. So basically, Congress forked over money. Yeah. The advent. Sounds of, about right. Yeah. So the advent of the alternating current power transmission system in the U.S. allowed designers to light the exposition. The exposition, goodness, in Buffalo using power generated 25 miles away at Niagara Falls. So Niagara Falls fueled power for the Pan American Exposition, Mm -hmm. uh, which then brings us to President William McKinley, which obviously he has a huge footprint around Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was assassinated at the Temple of Music on September 6, 1901 at the Pan American Expo. Nothing he did before this point matters. All we care about is the fact that he correct. died here. Yes, All right, correct. Now that, yeah. so it's not Ma- like he was president or anything. <laughs> so McKinley enjoyed meeting the public and was reluct- reluctant to accept the security available to his office. Secretary to the President George B. You really want me to say that? Cortelio? Yeah, Cortelio feared that an assassination attempt would take place during a visit to the Temple of Music and took it off the schedule twice, but McKinley restored it each time. Okay, so is this an inside job? I Come on. <laughs> so... <laughs> Just call me Alex Jones. Um, he died eight days later due to gangrene from the gunshot wound. So you, you know what gangrene is? No, I have no idea. <laughs> Tell the people what gangrene is. It's basically a giant infection that happens, and then you die from it. Yeah, it kills all your cells around the wound. So that's what really killed him. But the secretary to the president is like, I have a feeling the assassination attempt will happen at the Temple of Music. And they canceled it twice, and McKinley's like, nah, fam, I'm going. (laughs) Well, interestingly enough... The newly developed x-ray machine was displayed at the fair, but the doctors were reluctant to use it on McKinley to search for the bullet because they didn't know what side effects might have had on him. Also, the operating room at the exposition's emergency hospital did not have any electric lighting, even though the exteriors of many buildings were covered with thousands of light bulbs. Doctors used a pan to reflect sunlight onto the operating table as they treated his wounds. So, essentially... It's crazy. This is what I'm going to equate this to. Uh, let me get to, I actually did research for this. You're going to love it. Yeah. Prior planning and preparation prevents poor performance. They didn't oh, follow that's that. The, uh, that's the yep. Pat Max stuff? Yep. All right. So this next part is something that I found super interesting. So at the time of the shooting, there was no qualified doctor at the hospital, <laughs> only nurses and interns. Come on. What a slam for those doctors. Like, none of you are qualified. So the best surgeon in the city and the exposition's medical doctor, his name was Dr. Roswell Park. Did you know that Roswell Park was an actual person? I thought that it was just a park named after some dude named Roswell. No, yeah, that's a person. I had no idea about that. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought, well, I don't really travel to the Roswell Park quite often, so I didn't know that that was an actual person, but... It's pronounced the medical campus, yeah, but whatever. it's fine. Yeah, whatever. Nailed it. All right, so he was in Niagara Falls performing a delicate neck, neck operation. So this is my favorite part. So he was interrupted in the middle of the neck operation by secret security agents, and they were like, listen, doctor, we need you. And he's like, I literally wouldn't leave this surgery if it was for the President of the United States. And Secret Service is like, well, kind of got something to tell you. <laughs> it's the president. 
And he's like, I can't do it. So he didn't go. <laughs> so he doubled down and said, I'm actually lying to you. I'm, I wouldn't leave. Yeah, he said, I'm not leaving. All right. So he never left. So he successfully performed the neck operation on this woman. Um, and then he was told, obviously, it was the president of the United States. Two weeks later, two weeks after he denied the request to go help the president, he saved a woman who had the exact same injuries as the president of the United States during another operation. So if they would have called him and he didn't perform that neck operation, McKinley would be not alive today because he would be like 1,000 years old. But he would have been saved and he would have been assassinated because this doctor successfully did it two weeks later. That's insane. Then we would never have had the New Deal. It's pretty aggravating. Right? <laughs> it's pretty aggravating, though, because, well, I don't know. I mean, if you tell somebody, I wouldn't leave this unless it was a president of the United States, and then they say, well, it is a president of the United States, and they prove it, and then he's like, nah, I was just kidding. <laughs> like, that's that's kind of terrible. No, he said, I wouldn't leave this even if it was for the president of the United States. Oh, and they're like, well, well, I got something to tell you. It's yeah. the president of the United States. Like, he was joking around. Like, he... Who would have thought? And there was no one else qualified to do it? No. So I mean, clearly. So as the operation concluded, Dr. Park finally arrived to Niagara Falls. He was a little late. He caught an Uber and it got distracted <laughs> and kind of got caught up in traffic. So he was unwilling to interfere at 520. So the doctor that was performing the operation on um, President McKinley, he was literally stitching him up, McKinley. And he was like, Doc, do you want one last shot at like trying to figure this out? And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. So he didn't want to interfere because he's he's actually quoted by saying, you know the situation better than I do, so I'm not going to complicate things. That's really what he said. McKinley? When, no, the Dr. Park. So when he came to the actual operation room, the doctor that was operating on him was like, do you want to do anything else? And he's like, I don't, I'm coming in blind, man. Like, I'm not going to come in and tell you to do something when you did the entire operation and you're comfortable with it. That's not my place. So Park didn't do anything. It's crazy. So now we have a, a massive research facility, essentially, named after him, and he didn't even do his job. Yeah, what a failure. <laughs> just, obviously, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so, so our next batch so, of merchandise has to be related to So for those that don't know, we donate a portion of all proceeds to a different nonprofit. I don't even know if Roswell's a nonprofit because no. they literally take profit from, like, I don't know, Josh Allen's something i don't i don't know whatever so theodore roosevelt was the sworn was then sworn in on september 14th 1901 at the ansley wilcox mansion now the theodore roosevelt inaugural national historic site becoming one of the few presidents to be sworn in outside of washington which is pretty astounding like yeah it was there's, here. there's no presidents don't get sworn in outside of washington dc yeah he was and it was in buffalo not saying we're a big deal but we're a big deal yeah I like it. Um, <laughs> so I'm supposed to say a name to start this sentence, and I can't even begin to describe how to say this. So um, slow goals. No idea if that was. That's the guy who killed McKinley. I'll spell this. So C is in Charlie. Z is in Zulu. No. So um, Zogols. It's got to be Alpha, Beta, Charlie. Yeah, it's got to be Zogos. Yeah, he's um, Polish. C-Z-O-L-G-O-S-Z -Z was sentenced to death in the electric chair. Make sure you wet the sponge. We've all seen Green Mile. <laughs> and Congress passed legislation to I'll officially... put frosting in between the sponge, please. <laughs> to officially... Can't sponge <laughs> on To officially charge the Secret Service with the responsibility for protecting the president, um, which is pretty interesting. So... The Congress passed legislation to officially charge the Secret Service with the responsibility for protecting the president. Yeah. And that is that in lieu of the fact that they did not do that well enough during the Pan-American Exposition? Correct. Interesting. So, Which occurred in 1901. Yeah. Go ahead. So he, the Secret Service was like, you should not do this. And what happened was, so I, I read way too much on this, but I didn't want to type this all up. But... Dude, I love these research sections. I know, it's sections. amazing. You and I go way too far in the rabbit hole, and it makes me very happy. But what happened was the uh, Zogols or whatever, how you want to pronounce his name, he, it was very, what was it? It was warm that day. It was very warm outside. So a lot of people had handkerchiefs to dry their hands off before they shook the hand of the president. So when Zogols pulled his hand out of his pocket, he put a handkerchief over his gun. And when he went up to McKinley to shake his hand, McKinley thought that he injured his hand 
And that's why he had something draped over it because he thought that it was like injured or something. So when McKinley went to go reach for his left hand, that's when the dude shot him in the stomach. It is so interesting. I I didn't even know this. And I'll put a picture up too. I found the sweet picture where it showed the exact spot of the um, the auditorium where this happened. And it put an X on exactly where he was shot, which is pretty interesting. I really am upset that they didn't keep that building as a historic place because when they put up this Pan American exposition, they just tore it right back down. It was literally like the fair, like that Ferris wheel that some 12 year old stoner put together. That's coming back down. That's exactly what happened with this uh, auditorium. What stoners exist at 12 years old? I don't know. The age came out and then I just went with it. So (laughs) we could say 18 year old stoner put it up, did not check the safety requirements, but that's exactly what happened for this. I mean, they put it up and then they just tore everything back down. I think they should have kept that up. I mean, that's a huge part of our history. So that Yeah, but we got to golf at Delaware Park. That's true. Good point. And I don't know how much I can golf through a building. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, yeah, tear it down. All the history. Let's tear it down. Uh, we don't even need giraffes at the zoo anymore because my golf ball will hit them. Uh, but, yeah, okay. So, Mike, 1918. In 1918, the upgrade of the Erie Canal into the New York State Barge Canal meant that the canal now ended where Tanawana Creek meets the Niagara River. The advent of powered tugboats meant that barges could more easily move upstream in the upper portion of the river. As a result, the final section of the old canal, which had run alongside the river from Tanawanda to Buffalo, and which had been so critical to the city's growth nearly a century earlier, became obsolete and was gradually filled in over time. Which then leads us into the Peace Bridge opening on August 7th, 1927. Remember, we're going all the way till 1957, so, you know... Buckle up. Buckle in. Buffalo and Fort Erie each became the chief port of entry to their respective uh, countries from the other. Remains one of North America's important commercial ports with 4,000 trucks crossing it daily, which we can still see today. I mean, there's literally semis just sitting on the Peace Bridge on either direction, either going into the U.S. and or Canada. Yeah. So and it's full of Tim Hortons coffees and Timbits. So absolutely. keep it pumping, baby. Yeah. So now that we talked about McKinley p- passing and Canada, let's try to get to a brighter subject. So the Great Depression, <laughs> uh, there was severe, <laughs> there was severe unemployment, especially among working class men. Uh, this is when the New Deal relief program operated full force. Uh, the New Deal, the Green New Deal, as some might call it. The city became a stronghold of labor unions and the Democratic Party. Buffalo City Hall and the Art Deco Masterpiece was dedicated on July 1st, 1932. Which then- we, can, we can go into a ton into the Great Depression and World War II, which is next. But I do this thing would be eons long. <laughs> I know. It might so- actually be warm in here by the time you finish this topic. So <laughs> I, I didn't want to do that. So another bright spot is World War II. Um, So Buffalo saw the return of prosperity and full employment due to its positions as a manufacturing center. As one of the most populous cities of the 1950s, Buffalo's economy revolved almost entirely on its manufacturing base. Major uh, companies such as Republic Steel and Lackawanna Steel employed tens of thousands of Buffalonians, which a lot of my family worked, or not a lot of, but... Um, family members of mine worked at Republic Steel, like I want to steal, um, and then basically, you know, drove the fight, right? Rosa the Riveter and her husband. So integrated national shipping routes would use the so the Solocks near Lake Superior and a vast networks of railroad and yards that cross the city, which essentially brings us into, um, which I think we should touch on it in recovery when it literally burned down to the ground, but the, the buildings are still there. The mm-hmm. railroad is still there. You go down road, uh, Route 5, you'll hit premium coffee. Make sure you swing in, buy some coffee. It's great. But you're going to run into all of these historic landmarks that legitimately built the city and then mm-hmm. flow right into the skyway that leads you downtown. And it's remarkable to understand what actually happened in the city from 1901 to 1957 because that's literally driving us into what we're still seeing today yeah. in 2020 you know <clears throat> post fire of bethlehem steel but right. it's i mean it's there so it's extremely interesting i'll just go throw the coaster it's extremely interesting to see how it's all starting to tie in because yeah. we're not just talking about native americans now we're talking about the industries that legitimately formed buffalo yeah 
It's it's crazy. And I said this a little bit ago, and I'll say it again. This research portion, it might not like resonate with all of our listeners, but it's something you and I truly, truly enjoy doing. Yeah, so screw everybody else. Yeah, so we don't need followers. Unsubscribe, please. Um, <laughs> no, but then resubscribe, because yeah, then it please. brings us back to the top of the algorithm. Yeah, no, really. This is a plea for help. All right, so... <laughs> That was episode five talking about, I lied, this was episode six talking about the City of Light. I'm really new at this, so I apologize. Um, So this was the City of Light. If you missed any of the episodes beforehand, I'll read them really quick to you right now. We'll go through all the bullet points again. Mike, you want to, no, I'm just kidding. So (laughs) basically, if you missed Railroads and Industry, go back to episode five. Episode four was Erie Canal. Episode three was the founding in the 19th century. Episode two was the first Europeans. And episode one was the pre-colonization. So if any of those topics interest you, go to our playlist section and our YouTube videos and go watch them from episode one. We've honestly put a lot of time into doing the research for this. I found so much interesting out of all these topics that we've discussed, and I can only assume that everybody else will as well, because I'm not sure how many people really understand the history of Buffalo. It goes very, very deep, which is always exciting to learn. Mm -hmm. Next episode seven, we're going to be talking about the suburbanization and decline, which we'll cover from 1957 until 2010. Decline of what though? I guess we'll find out. Life. It's, Buffalo has been downhill since then. We lost 100,000 people since 1901. It's gone downhill, Mike. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what topics are embedded within that 60-year segment. So it'll be very interesting. Tune in next week to hear all about that. And um, that's basically it, Mike. That's episode 62. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. But we're at the Buffalo Happy Hour 12 on YouTube. We're, we're at Buffalo- 192 subscribers right now. That's insane. I didn't know we gained two. Yeah. Sick. Uh, Buffalo Happy Hour on Facebook. If you want to buy a sweater, let us know. It's a perfect holiday gift. We have all sizes available. For the donation, it's going to Buffalo Niagara Waterkeepers, who cleans our water. They matter. Um, and then we have a lot of interviews still coming out. Uh, we're trying to navigate through the world and see who we can have on coming up. So we're excited for that. But thank you for all support. We appreciate you guys. And we're looking forward to episode 63 next week. And uh, we will see you after the first group of holidays. Oh, yeah. It's been a great time, everybody. Please remember to drink responsibly and just be a good person. And Mike, don't litter. We're out. how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.